Well, congratulations. We survived one day. <laughs> um, when I when I give this chanting at the beginning of a Dhamma talk, it's an invitation to listen uh, from 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 your body, not just with your head or your ears, not even just with your heart. So the kind of the kind of thing, uh, instructions about listening to a dhamma talk is to sit in an upright and relaxed way and to have 90% of your attention inwardly rather than focused on what I'm saying so that when your attention is focused inwardly you know when what I'm saying makes sense or resonates or you know allows some kind of insight to emerge and you also know when it doesn't make sense or you can't follow and also sometimes, you know, I, I get off track or my own personal material comes in. And like tonight, you know, I, I don't have a theme. There's, I don't, no theme emerged. So it's a little bit an interesting experience when I sit here and, and just see what emerges. So the invitation is, is to just listen inwardly and attend to what it feels like as you're listening. So really what's happening is, is that there's a perfect dialogue happening with each person. Even though I'm the only one speaking, each one is listening inwardly and you're getting a somatic response about whether what you're hearing makes sense or doesn't make sense. You know, obviously that my, my um, inclination or my aspiration is to speak in a way which is conducive of awakening. But if what I'm saying or suggesting or talking about doesn't resonate, there's no need to take it on board as some kind of an idea or belief for you to, to accept and if I speak in a way where, you know, somehow my personal material comes in in a way where it actually goes against your deepest understanding about what the truth is or what is a supportive in this role, then please don't just let it go. Um, write me a note, come talk to me in a private interview or something. Because just in that way, what we do is we set up a relationship of, of mutual support, mutual respect. It's not just me, it's you as well and the way that you're listening and how you're listening that creates the environment for this to happen. Uh, it needs to be a, a mutually supportive uh, agreement in order for us to, uh, to do this together. So it's, it's, ex- it's extraordinary. You know, people have carved out uh, so much time and come and sit and it's not easy, you know. The body hurts when you put it in one place and you don't move it very much and you walk and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and sit. In fact, it hurts more than you can sometimes imagine that it could possibly hurt. You know, But what I sense in this room is there's no shortage of determination. You know, There's a lot of stillness and that's unusual on a first day. But sometimes the determination is coming because the system has not yet found a, a sense of Easefulness with the whole thing. So there's a there's a kind of I'm here and I'm going to do it. But one hasn't figured out how to open and relax through it. So, and that's part of what we will be uncovering in these next days. You know. 
So it's often the case on the first day that you get the long-drawn look, you know, kind of the miserable meditator effect. (laughs) You know, the bodies are a little bit like concrete, you know, and it's like it takes a lot to get through a day. And, you know, some people might be unsettled, some people might be unpained, some people might feel confused, some people might be generating the mantra, what am I doing here? And, and doing that again and again and again. So whether it's doubt or confusion or pain or unsettledness or whatever, it's like, you know, we'll shift and change, you know, and each of us will have our own version of that. And yet, so it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile question, you know, what, why did you come? You know, what was your aspiration? What was your hope? What did you think was going to happen when you got here? And I can't, I can't answer that for you. I mean, obviously, you have to inquire for yourself. What was your sense of what this was going to be like? And how does that match up with reality? And so, you know, then we step back a little bit, and, you know, and then take a look about well, what is it? What is this about being a human being and, and this journey? You know, what are what are ways of reflecting on this that's actually useful? So it's not helpful for me to tell you what your motivations should be, but sometimes it is helpful to step back and look at a bigger picture, and then from that one can see how or if one fits, or where one fits into the unfolding. You know, so if we look around, you know, we're in, we're in an unusual place. Uh, you know, I've never been to this facility before, as I said, and, and I'm enjoying the kind of the landscape. I'm enjoying the presence of the rocks and the water and the trees. I, I like seeing uh, people who seem to have a, a comfortable and easeful way about them. You know, they've got a, there's a nice feeling in this community. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's lovely here. It's also, I was enjoying seeing the children. You know, it's, it's rare. It's, it's rare in the monastery that the children are there in the evening time. They usually would come at the mealtime offering, but not, we don't see the children in the evening time. You know, there would be one week a year when the children and the families would come. And then other than that, it was like, there's a kind of a sense, well, the children aren't, aren't part of what the monastery is. So for me, I've just found it very lovely to see children around, which is nice, because children are part of the world. It's nice to have them around. Yeah, so, you know, we have a lovely environment in this situation where, you know, people are intent on creating an atmosphere that's supportive for us. And so even though, you know, we have a, a little bit of hiccups where... People haven't worked out that this is not where they're normally meeting and somebody comes barging in the door or, you know, it's not a, a facility that's used to silence and so people are talking in the dining hall or talking around when they're working or whatever. You know, basically people are happy that we're here and happy to support us in whatever way that they can in order that we can do what we need to do. And so, you know, that's, that's lovely and it's not that common, you know. You know, how often... How often are we in situations where, you know, the food is offered and the accommodation is set up and the towels are washed for us and, you know, the places clean, the toilets are clean for us. It's like, you know, how often do we are we in places like that, you know? You know, there's a situation where there's a shrine, there's teachings, and we have the whole day to meditate, to practice. 
And yet the reality is, is that when we actually come into the room and sit with what's happening, it's not so easy. So, you know, looking at, well, why is it not so easy? And then how is it that we can work with what's happening in a way that we can shift our kind of struggle or just kind of gritting our teeth and enduring and finding something else that emerges that has a little bit more capacity for ease and well-being and and even the the rare occasional smile. (laughs) Not a smile because anyone's intending to impress somebody, but just a smile because of the the, the, the delight of, of, of being able to open in the present moment and, and seeing the, the kind of miracle that happens in the way we can shift our attention. So I think it's a universal longing that we all have, and I think we share it with animals, and I think we probably even share it with plants, as well as other kind of beings that we don't see. You know, there's a longing for happiness. There's a deep-seated longing for happiness. And yet the way our society conditions us to relate to that is, is, is that, you know, when we have something that's painful, we try and um, cover it or medicate it or uh, deal with it by moving towards that which is pleasant or pleasurable. But the problem with doing that is, is that that which is pleasant or pleasurable is, is not lasting. And so if we don't actually come to terms with something which is painful, then the way that we're responding to it is short-lived. And also, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of, of unsettledness that's happening in this time. You know, huge changes that are going on in government and culture and families and people's psyches. And with that change, there's a longing for stability. But the things that we kind of grab onto for stability are also things which change. So if we're grabbing onto something which also by its own nature shifts and changes, then it doesn't leave us the kind of solid ground that we are hoping for. And then we start to, you know, investigate or get a feeling for, you know, sickness, you know, or the fact that our bodies are subject to aging and to death. You know, as a reality, it's not just a morbid fantasy. It's actually something that we we have to deal with. And again, you know, sometimes the way that we respond to that is by attaching to something which also gets subject to aging and subject to sickness and subject to death. So our kind of ingrained mechanisms and the way that we look for happiness usually doesn't end up fulfilling our need with other than something that's very short-lived. And sometimes our short-lived sense of happiness ends up bringing us quite a lot of suffering when our decisions are not skillful, you know. So the whole range of dealing with pain by moving towards something which is pleasant and that pleasant thing is it has there's some kind of relationship with it which is addictive. There's a big, huge suffering in all of that. Or when there's a, a, a kind of a lot of, of, of anger or a lot of fear in the system and the, and the way of, of, of responding to that is to try and control. There's a big, huge suffering in all of that. 
And so, you know, we come on meditation and the hope is, is that there'll be some peace and some quiet and some stillness and some ease. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that wasn't your hope. <laughs> and what we get is a body that feels like concrete, you know? <laughs> you know, or a back. You can't just, you can't imagine how much a back can hurt. <laughs> or a knee can hurt, you know? It's just like, it's not possible it can hurt this much. And then what's needed is a kind of like stepping back a little bit and looking at kind of where we're just coming from. Where we're coming from, you know, a a fast-paced situation where our systems have been inundated with details and information and decision-making. And our ability to stay present with what is happening is uh, contextual and also often limited, okay? So our... Uh, we don't have the time and the energy often to just to be with what's happening. And so, because there are so many different tasks and duties and things that we need to attend to. And on top of that, our habit is to change the circumstances whenever we feel a little bit uncomfortable as a basic kind of strategy for dealing with things which are not pleasant. And then we come into this situation and it's like, you know, the gravity inverts, you know. So, you know, we're spending a lot of time sitting, a lot of time feeling what is actually present. And all of the kind of momentum of what has been happening since the last time we kind of cleared the decks or emptied things out or had a real opportunity to settle and check in, it's a little bit like a, an avalanche, you know? When's just dealing with the kind of the, 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 the vipaka, the results of the previous momentum that has preceded one entering into this room. And so, uh, and it can be, you know, unsettling that there can be such a lot, you know, a lot of feeling, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of doubt, a lot of body pain, whatever it is. It sometimes just feels, or just thick, you know, it just feels thick. You know, it doesn't feel light, it feels thick. Yeah. So again, it's a sense of just there needs to be a kind of appreciation of what we're coming from and also an appreciation of how one can work with all of this in a way which is skillful. So, you know, for me, I I do find it helpful looking at the Buddha's life, you know, because for me the Buddha is really an exemplary uh, human being, both in his humanness as well as in his profound understanding. And so, you know, sometimes when I just take a look at some of the things that happened in his life, it helps give me perspective on the things that I also experience. And so in his, in his life, we can look and we can see that, you know, he was born into a family and had abundant opportunities and wealth. And he had enormous gifts and talents and he was tremendously handsome. People really loved him. And so, you know, in that situation, you know, we can think for ourselves of, well, what, what, what is our if-only list? You know, what are we holding out for? If only, if only the relationship was healthy or if only the job was better or if only I had people around me who were partners or lovers, if only I had more time. What is it? What is it? What's the if-only list that we're hanging out for? You know, what is our fantasy that if we got that thing or that situation or that um, sorted, 
that we would be okay, you know. So when I look at my own life and my if-only list, and I contrast that to the Buddha, who, you know, basically had everything that I could imagine anyone would ever want, you know, in terms of possibility and privilege and opportunity. And yet there were a whole series of things that happened where he said, you know, this is not the way I want to live. This is not a life that brings me happiness. And so the the circumstances that catalyzed his reflection on that was a profound recognition of the instability of our lives and the and the fact that we get old and we get sick and we do die. And so this contemplation of the of the inevitability of our own death is not just a morbid thing to engage with, but something to really put a kind of context on, you know, what's important in life and how do we practice? What do we value? Where do we put our time and our energy? And so for him, he could see that, you know, no matter how powerful he was and how much opportunity he had and how much privilege, you know, no matter how much people loved him or how gifted he was, he did not have any way at all to conquer sickness, aging, or death. And he couldn't do that for himself, and he couldn't do that for his family. You know, the people that he loved the dearest. And so these three heavenly messengers, old age, sickness, and death, had a profound impact on his own motivation of like, you know, it was unsettling into his world, of recognizing that, you know, it wasn't all that it appeared to be. And then the fourth heavenly messenger was seeing a renunciant who was striving for enlightenment. And so here is the like the, the possibility of, of a of a kind of freedom which is which is beyond sickness, beyond aging, and beyond death. Now you know, we hear the word enlightenment, it's, you know, commonplace, it's in the newspaper, you know, it's on the radio. But it's actually rare to understand what that means and to have some sense that it actually is possible, that there is a freedom that is not dependent on conditions being a particular way. And that it's not only possible, but it is something that each of us has the ability to cultivate and to practice. And so then having uh, opportunities, having teachers, meeting somebody one has a sufficient confidence in, listening to the teachings, applying the practice, these are all phenomenally fortunate circumstances, which are actually very, very, very rare in this world. So the sense of of there is a way out is what the fourth heavenly messenger brings. That there actually is some kind of happiness which is which is not dependent on the world doing or being or giving what I think it should or what I want. 
So then that brings us back into, well, if it's not, you know, the world being or doing or thinking what I should, then, you know, how or where or where do we find that sense of peacefulness? Now, it was, I was just reading this evening some of the suttas and um, at the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, the way it's written in the, in the scripture is, is that the, what preceded his enlightenment was the ability to concentrate the mind enough so that the mind was uh, completely equanimous. And then he withdrew his mind from that concentration and used the malleability of that mind, the clarity, the refinement of a mind that had come out of concentration in order to reflect on certain characteristics of his uh, life. He looked at previous births. He looked at the cycle of dependent origination. And he brought the potency of that mind to the hindrances, qualities of greed and anger, doubt of restlessness, of conceit. And it was the, 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 the mind that had been made malleable and refined with concentration that then was the catalyst for an opening into something which was free, which was not dependent on conditions. It wasn't the concentration itself that was freeing. It was the preparation and what it did to the mind that enabled that freedom to take place. And so we can see that, you know, when we spend time and we work with what's arising and we stay with it, and we bring our attention to the breath, and we connect it with the body, and we allow that to suffuse the body, you can see what happens to the mind in terms of the, of the, of the thinking, how the thinking can begin to diminish. And there can be a sense, there can be a sense of an ease that can come with just staying with the breath, a sense of equanimity that can come. But this focus, this concentration is not the thing that liberates. What liberates is the ability to reflect on the nature of our own experience. And so in that way, you know, what we need to be also to be able to see is is that in addition to allowing the mind and the body to settle in order to let the body relax and the breath to suffuse What's also needed is the ability to see that whatever is arising in the present moment, there's also a way of being present with it where one's not adding any suffering. So, you know, there can be tension. But there can also be a reaction to tension. I don't want it to be here. I wish it were otherwise. I wish I was relaxed. There can be pain. And there is a reaction to pain. I don't want it. If only. And so what one is able to see is is that it isn't so much the thing that we're experiencing directly, which is where the problem arises. It's the way that we're relating to it. 
And so we have these lists, you know, I want to be free from pain, I want to be energetic, and I want to be clear, and I want to be equanimous, and I want to be loving, and I want to be wise, and I want to be fearless, and I want to be um, passionate and intelligent, and I want to be uh, absolutely clear and articulate, and I want to be capable and efficient, and I want to be spontaneous, and I mean, the list is endless, you know. And then we superimpose the list on top of reality, and it's like, you know, what ends up when we do that? You know? So the concrete sometimes is a juxtaposition of what we think it's supposed to be on top of what it actually is. And then the whole system gets tense. So it's not that those qualities are bad or unwholesome or that it isn't useful to cultivate ways towards developing them further. But when we attach to them and hold them as an idea and then superimpose them on what's actually happening, we end up with quite a mud pie. <laughs> and our body usually ends up bearing the burden. You know, we can feel it. So what's arising? What's actually happening right now? How we're relating to that, that's the key. So the way we start is to develop some concentration, some connection, letting the body relax, open, beginning to connect with the breath and suffuse the breath through the body, allowing the body to become a foundation for attention and awareness to settle, not just because it's a good idea, because it's really helpful to actually feel connected with our body as we are practicing. It gives us some leverage on some of this other stuff, how it's landing in us and what we're doing with it. So the problem isn't that our bodies feel like concrete or our back hurts or our knees hurt or our minds feel like sludge. That's not the problem. The problem is is that we don't want it to be like that. That's the problem. So when we're able to look at where the problem actually is, and then we can bring a kind and embracing awareness to that, to our reaction, then we can begin to see a little bit more softening, a little bit more breath suffusing through the tissues. The body can then begin to start feeling a little bit more alive, a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more peaceful. Sometimes, though, that's not the case. Sometimes what happens is that the better we're practicing, then the more awful it gets. <laughs> and people think, it can't possibly be like this. This is a linear road. I'm on the way to Nibbana, and it's a straight shot, and here I go, you know? <laughs> and then one realizes you open things up, and then there's all kinds of stuff that comes up, and you have no idea where it came from. You know, fear or anxiety or a sense of doubt or uncertainty or pains, you know. But the practice works. The practice is not just a good idea. It absolutely works. And I am not here to convince you. I'm here to encourage you to see for yourself. You know, see what happens if in the middle of something unpleasant there's the ability to just be with the resistance in the reaction to that. Holding that gently, lovingly, 
with care and interest and see what happens to the reaction. Does it stay solid? Does it soften? Does it move? Does it shift? Does it take another form? But in order to be able to do that, there has to be enough mindfulness and capacity to stay present that we actually can bring our attention to the reaction. Because otherwise, what we have is just this blur. You know, a body that feels like concrete and a mind that feels like sludge. And there's no... You can't pick it up. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what you're feeling. You know? It just feels horrible. (laughs) But horrible, we can know horrible. Horrible feels like that. It feels horrible. All right. So, and then how does horrible... And, you know, do I want that to go? Well, I can get a sense of my reaction to that. You know, yuck. You know? Or occasionally we can have a moment of loveliness where we hear a bird or a sound or the food is delicious and fresh or we see a child and it's like, (gasps) and then there's a thought, it should always be this way. (laughs) This is what I came here for. It's always supposed to be like this. And so we can see the attachment. And so when we bring our attention to our reaction, which is the attachment, then that gives us the ability to see, well, when there's attachment, there's suffering. When there's aversion, there's suffering. The way out is in. The way out of suffering is into the suffering. Touching it, meeting it, receiving it, and finding a way through it which is different than our habitual ways, which is to avoid or to placate pain with pleasure or to find something that appears to be steady when in fact it's just like quicksand. You know, it isn't at all steady. So the practice requires a willingness to touch and meet what's happening. And in order to do that, there needs to be a basis of kind of a sense of relaxation and goodness, a sense of ease and well-being in our own system to even be able to turn our attention in that direction. Because you think, well, you know, if it hurts, I don't want to go closer to it, you know. (laughs) I'm out of here. But where can we go out of here? Where is out? Where can we get away from any of this stuff? So that's the irony, you know? That's the absolute irony, is is that when we come and we sit with ourselves and we be with what's arising, you know, the way out is in. Is actually to feel what's there and begin to find another way of responding not based on the old habits, not based on our old conditioning, not based on what the society is telling us, what the billboards are saying, but based on a a real sense of what's wise and what's compassionate, what actually allows things to settle, what allows the mind to brighten, the body to relax, what allows that sense of peace that is not coming from in this the gratification from something pleasant but from connecting with something that's sustainable sustaining 
worthwhile, lasting. So we have all kinds of ideas that we get from our families and our societies and our culture. And then we also have all kinds of ideas that we have about what practice is or what it's supposed to be. And those can also be a whole huge range of suffering that we need to encounter and look at. You know, meditation practice is not a good idea it's, a, it's the willingness to be with what is happening and feel our way into our reactions around it. And so, you know, I, I was encouraging people to learn to trust their intuition because sometimes what our intuition is asking of us is different than what our good idea about meditation is saying we're supposed to be doing. And then we feel a conflict. So what does it feel like to trust oneself? What does it feel like to genuinely ask the question, is this following desire or is this following intuition? What does that look like? And so we can know that the results are useful or helpful or effective when the mind and the body open and relax. When actually what we are doing is giving ourselves more capacity to meet what is present. If we are getting tighter and more tense, then that may be a signal that there's something in the mix which is a little bit out of kilter. Now, just because it's getting tight and tense doesn't mean that we throw it out. It just means that we may need to reinvestigate the way we are investigating, the quality of energy, the ability to stay present, the way our attention is resting. Because we can get gripped in any of those places. And that gripping can be the cause of the tension. So it doesn't mean that we throw out effort but we investigate the quality of effort. It doesn't mean we throw out determination or diligence, but we look at the way we relate to determination and diligence. So, you know, one of the things about this practice is that it's profoundly liberating. But the other thing about the practice is that you don't have a lot of ground to stand on. One can give encouragement of ways and directions to practice, but what is needed is to feel one's way through it. And each moment is a new opportunity. 
with another whole set of things that need to be felt through. What's actually happening and how am I relating to it? So the meditation techniques are tools, but they're not absolute. They're contextual. And so the process of the whole Satipatthana meditation practice is not one object that we're focusing on. The Satipatthana Sutta has something like 24 different objects to work with. And they move in progression from more coarse to more refined, from the physical to that which is beyond the physical, to the ability to understand object and from the ability to let attention rest in awareness itself, from the mind moving into states which are uh, just recognizing what's going on on the regular normal plane to uh, uh, an expanded plane and then understanding what liberation actually is. But there's no one thing to grab onto. So why have we come? What are we hoping for? Why are you meditating? Why do you come in the room? I can't answer that question for you. But what I can say is, is, is that, you know, the kind of happiness that people genuinely long for is a happiness that is able to experience the, the pleasures of the world a happiness that's able to experience the heart that's open and able to rejoice and to forgive and to experience compassion and kindness for oneself and for others. But the pleasures of the world and having heart experiences or mind experiences, those are transitory. They come and they go. They're not things that we can lay claim to but that's mine and I own it and that is what I experience like all the time but the kind of possibility of what practice brings is the ability to look in the present moment and find the peace that's present even if the object is unsatisfactory And so in that way, one is not only waiting until one's an arahant, until there's no more trace of ignorance or confusion in the system. But finding the peace that's present every moment. And so in order to find the peace that's present in every moment, there needs to be clarity about what one is experiencing and how one is relating to it. Because it's right there where one is able to turn things and allow the peace to be seen, experienced, and known. It's right in the gripping 
where there's the ending of gripping. It's right in the pushing away. It's in that action of pushing away that are the very seeds of the release of aversion or not wanting. It's not someplace other than that. We don't have to get rid of that. We have to open up to that. So even though we are working with developing a sense of collectedness and connectedness, establishing mindfulness, suffusing the body and the breath with awareness, in any moment there's the ability to move from suffering into non-suffering. And that has to do with how we are actually bringing our attention to the present moment and what we are placing our attention on. So what knows fear is not frightened. What knows aversion is not aversive. What knows grasping and clinging and desiring is not filled with those qualities. The mirror is not tainted by what it reflects. But our attention is focused and fixated on the objects of what it knows. It has lost contact with the reflective capacity of knowing itself. But right there is where the key is, and it's a golden key. It's an exquisite golden key. Because that golden key can open anything and have the world shift. Just like in the space here, you know? This is a lovely room. It's very, very satisfactory. It's comfortable. It's the right temperature. We're not huddled up with blankets and sub-zero temperatures. (laughs) You know? It's just lovely. But there, it's possible that something could happen in this room and something horrible would come in or smelly or ugly or mean. Yeah. You know, our focus of our attention is usually to grab onto the object and then try to battle with it, to negotiate with it, to get it out, to make it more nice or less smelly or more peaceful. And certainly within our scope as human beings, we have the ability to work with the conditions that we're experiencing. You know, we can decide whether we want to have breakfast or lunch downstairs or upstairs. You know, we've got some choice. But fundamentally, what we need to also see is it's the way that we're relating to what's happening, which is actually where our real freedom can come from.
It's a kind of peace which is unshakable. A kind of peace which is not dependent on anything or anyone. So it's up to each of us to decide what we value and how we want to live our lives and the choices that we make and if that's of interest or not, whether it's worth the time and the aching knees and the gray and the dull minds. But that's the possibility that can come in meditation. an unshakable deliverance of heart. So after a first day, you know what's needed is an awful lot of care and kindness. And appreciation. It takes guts to do this. And the offering is for you to see how you experience it and what the results are. And I wish for each of us, and I include myself in this, that we have the strength and the perseverance as well as the gentleness to do what is needed in order that we may genuinely experience this unshakable deliverance of heart. Because when I look around, I don't see anything that compares with it. So I leave that for reflection for this evening. And again, just want to reiterate that, you know, I hadn't a clue what I was going to talk about this evening. And so just listening inwardly and sounding out with your own body sense, letting your own body tell you what feels right to take on board and listen to, what feels right just to let go. And if ever I'm speaking on the Dhamma, and speak in a way that goes against your deepest understanding. Don't just let it go. This situation is far too important to dismiss something like that. It's a rare opportunity and it requires each of us to hold up that respect for the truth. 
in a way that that's what this situation will support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.